Well, I want to begin today by telling you a story. And as I share it, I want you to ask yourself, who am I? Who am I in this story? Are you ready? Here we go. A group of men gathered at the gym to work out, and they began talking about sports and their jobs and the government, you know, man talk. Finally, one of them said, you know, when it comes right down to it, all people are basically selfish. We just take care of number one and the heck with everyone else. But another man quietly disagreed. I don't think we're all that way. I'll tell you why. I recently stopped to get a newspaper at a convenience store. The man who sells me the paper every weekday I've known for years, but one morning he seemed emotional, so I asked him if everything was okay. The store owner gestured to the front window and said, you see that bus bench over there? There's an older woman who comes every day around this time. She sits there for about an hour, knitting and waiting. Buses come and go, but she never boards, and no one ever gets off to meet her. Well, the other day, I took her a cup of coffee, and I sat down with her for a while. She said she was a widow and that her only child, a son, lives out west. The last time she saw him was about two years ago when he boarded the bus at that same location. Her son is married now, but she has never met her daughter-in-law or her first grandchild. She said, it helps me to come here and wait. I pray for them as I knit little things for the babies, and I imagine them in their tiny apartment saving money to come home. I can't wait to see them. The store owner took a deep breath and went on. Well, not three minutes ago, I looked out the window, and there was the woman's son and his wife and the baby getting off the bus. And when they all embraced, the expression on her face was the nearest thing to pure joy I have ever seen. It touched me. I'll never forget it as long as I live. The man said to his gym buddies, I returned to the store the next morning. But before the store owner could say anything, I asked him, you sent her son the money for the bus tickets, didn't you? Store owner looked back with a satisfied expression and responded, yes, yes, I sent him the money. And the man told the guys at the gym, the expression on his face was the nearest thing to pure joy I've ever seen. It touched me. I'll never forget it as long as I live. The end. Okay. Now, in this story, in this story, who are you? Which perspective represents your life? Are you like the men at the gym who categorize people, including themselves, as mostly selfish, living for today, pursuing their own interests, making their own way through life, taking care of their own business? Or are you more like the man who was moved and touched by a very heartwarming story, but the story was not his own? He only passed on something he heard from someone else. He's interested but not involved. He's impressed, but he's not invested. 
Or are you like the store owner? Are you like the man who initiated action, took a risk, extended himself? I want you to notice the difference. The guys at the gym were cynical. The man telling the story to his friends was sentimental. But the man who made the difference in this woman's life experienced the deep joy that is reserved for those who generously serve and give. Maybe the better question this morning is not, who are you, but who do you want to be in your better moments? Well, I think in our better moments, we all want to be difference makers. We don't want to be negative critics like the guys at the gym or passive bystanders like the storyteller merely relating what others have experienced. As Christ followers, we want to be like the store owner. We want to personally touch other people's lives. In our better moments, we want to get off the bench and get into the game. We want to stop watching life happen around us. We want to experience the vitality of the abundant life that Jesus promised us if and when we move out of our selfish interests and our comfort zones. Well, do you know that the Oxford Dictionary now has an entry for the term couch potato? They do. It has officially, officially become a part of our English language. Couch potato is defined as a person who does little or no exercise and watches a lot of television. Now, friends, I'm not here today to promote you buying a gym membership or selling your flat screen or doing away with chips and salsa. But I do want us to be aware of a related condition in the contemporary church, it's summed up in a word that I have coined, pew-potato. A pew-potato is a Christian who makes his way or her way to church at every available opportunity to observe what's going on while snacking on God's Word. Now, pew-potato would be disinclined to any kind of involvement. There's little or no investment of minutes for service or money to accomplish God's work. There's no inconvenience in the contribution of our time and no sacrifice in the contribution of our finances. Well, today I want to introduce you to someone who is a lot like the store owner in our story, and he is the polar opposite of a pew potato. This is someone who lived a generous life from the day of his conversion, maybe the greatest Christian of all time, the Apostle Paul, and his life is a model for us at Crossroads as we seek to be a church that embraces this core value, a part of the Crossroads playbook, this core value of living lives of impact by generously serving and generously giving. Take a look with me at the text of Scripture. This is Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Now, you know that the Apostle Paul was starting churches all over the world in his own day and time. And one of the churches he started was at Ephesus. And that church, even in its infancy, had elders and was a thriving church. And you can 
visit Ephesus today and see the site of, of what happened in that city that was revolutionary. Well, the Apostle Paul wanted to keep in touch with the elders, the overseers of that church. And so, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, now I want you to pay attention to Paul's words, because in Paul's words, we see this generous serving and giving spirit. Here's what he said. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything to you that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So, do you think people really believe that last statement, that it is more blessed to give than to receive? I, I, think, I think most people believe that. I think most of us do. We know how good it feels when we engage in some kind of unselfish act, some kind of giving gesture. And when we do it to advance God's purpose, it feels even better. A lot of people know that in our community, in this world. Those who've helped us get our West Side Ministry Center and our Crossroads Worship Arts Academy facilities ready to go here in 2013. All of us as a church who are aware that we are supporting nine new church planting evangelists in India. There's just a good, good feeling about that. And Paul understood Jesus' challenge to generous living. And so he lived out the words of Jesus that it'll make you happier to give than receive. And Paul testified to the Ephesian elders in a way that reveals the core values of his own life and ministry, and it's a great model for the elders in Ephesus and for the church at Crossroads. So, what are the expressions of generosity that are revealed in Paul's words in Acts 20? Well, I think, first of all, we see generosity with our time. Verse 18 and verse 31, Paul said, "'You know how I lived.'" The whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Look at all the time references in these two verses. Paul was generous with his time, serving the Lord, serving people. 
He understood that it is actually impossible to save time. You can't do it. You can only invest your time. And each of us has a weekly deposit of 168 hours, and we cannot save any of it up. We will spend it all in a week, never to be recovered. And time is our most significant capital, a little over 10,000 minutes each week to invest. And we invest that 10,000 minutes in things that are important or things that are insignificant. We invest that time in things that matter and things that don't matter, things that will last and things that don't last. And while we're all busy, while we're all busy, the fact is we all have more time than we think we do. A man and his wife were sitting in the living room and they were discussing end-of-life decisions, and he said to her, just so you know, I never want to live in a vegetative state dependent on some machine. If that ever happens, just pull the plug. So she got up, went over, and unplugged the TV. (laughs) Well, there are a couple of things in this text There are a couple of things in this text that I think motivated Paul's generosity with his time. One of them is urgency. If you look at his words, it says the whole time, he says, from the first day, I never stopped night and day. The language here reveals that Paul felt that he was doing something that was critically important and that the time was short to get it done. I think the longer that we're Christians, the more we're tempted to lose our edge in this regard. We're tempted to lose our sense of urgency. And I see the same sense of urgency in the words of Jesus in John 4. Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Friends, the clock is ticking. And the day is soon coming when the time for work is going to run out and our eternal rest will begin. But there will be a lot of people who do not enter that rest. If we fail to have a sense of urgency about how to invest our time as a church in reaching out to them, there's urgency there. And that's why Paul generously invested his time. I think sincerity is also a factor and his words here in his testimony, the testimony we just read, he included a reference to his tears. Night and day, he said, with tears. Our generous investment of time in serving should never be a matter of unconscious routine or legalistic duty. It needs to be what Reggie McNeil calls a work of heart, work of heart. Whatever we do should be motivated by sincere compassion, by a deep desire to see the highest good surface in the lives of other people, to see them be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I am convicted by the sincerity that's revealed in the words of Paul here in Romans 9-2. Look at this. I have 
great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. That's how badly Paul wanted to see people come to Jesus Christ. I consider these words to be the ultimate expression of sincerity. So let's be specific here. What are we talking about when it comes to generosity with our time? Well, if we take 168 hours in a week and we subtract 56 hours for sleep, and I know what some of you are going to say, eight hours of sleep a night for seven nights? Oh, yes. Well, Maybe some of you, 56, will catch it, and for others of you, you don't get quite that much. I'm being generous here. 168 hours in a week, you're going to sleep for 56 hours. Then I've allowed 50 hours for work. Now, that's a 40-hour week, maybe plus some commute time, plus some overtime. Again, I'm trying to be generous here. That leaves you 62 hours. My guess is that most of us have more than 62 hours, but let's, let's be generous as we can here. We have 62 hours of discretionary time. Now, tithe of that would be about six hours. So, if you were going to give a tithe of your time every week, that would allow you a couple of hours for worship, a couple of hours for some kind of small group involvement, and a couple of hours for service of some kind. And by making this commitment of time, you will faithfully invest in your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with others. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. I'm not sure most people are careful about how they live, how they structure their lives, how they apportion their time. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. A wise person redeems the time. Because, the text says, the days are evil. Well, what's another expression of generosity in our text? Generosity with our time. There's also generosity with our talent. Look at verse 20, verse 24. Paul said, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, friends, the Apostle Paul had a razor-sharp mind, and he was gifted in preaching and teaching, and he's generous in his use of these gifts and to benefit other people. But the fact is that God has given every one of us in this assembly talents. He's given us gifts. He's given us abilities, things that we're passionate about. And we often use these to benefit ourselves or to provide for our families, making a living. That's a good thing. But we can also contribute them for the benefit of others. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. And I'm proud of Crossroads people who get this. I'm telling you, we've got We've got doctors and dentists and nurses and attorneys and teachers and auto mechanics and landscapers and decorators and clerical people and child care workers and coaches and cooks 
and architects and contractors and construction workers and accountants and musicians and lawn and building maintenance people and technicians, all who donate their gifts and abilities to serve this church family and to serve our community in the name of Jesus and to serve on the mission field in the name of Christ. And such unselfishness honors the Lord and His church, and it meets the needs of people in His name. And I want to encourage you, if you're not getting in on this, if you're not using some of your time and some of your talents to serve the Lord and to serve other people in His name, take this step. This young lady whose picture is on the screen is Cassidy Hayden, and she is our volunteer coordinator at Crossroads. And you can call the church... And her extension is 449. Or you can go online and contact her at her email address there. And she will see that you get plugged in. Well, there's one other expression of generosity that's revealed in Paul's words here in Acts 20. Time, talent, and treasure. Now, you don't know how badly that I did not want to alliterate these words. I did not want to use time, talent, treasure, but I just couldn't get away from it. It's right there in the passage. Look at verse 30 to 35. Paul says, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You see, Paul was not into the health and wealth scene in the Christian community. He's not into the health and wealth gospel. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Apostle Paul was not greedy. He was generous, and he used his financial resources not only to provide for himself, but to provide for his co-workers. Paul actually supported those who served full-time with him. Now, Paul had the equivalent of more than one Ph.D. Do you realize that? We're talking about a white-collar guy here. We're talking about a guy that could have commanded a high salary here, a well-educated man, a well-connected man, but he worked with his hands as a tent maker, so his motives for ministry would not be suspect. He personally practiced that it's more blessed to give than to receive. He lived out the teaching of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul took the counsel of Jesus seriously when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, he meant that we should invest in what lasts forever. So what lasts forever? Three things. Number one is the Word of God abides forever. Souls of people. And the third thing is our good works. Matthew 25 makes it clear that what we do with our minutes and what we do with our money, follows us into the greater life and is the basis of our reward in heaven. It's not the basis of our salvation, but it is the basis of our reward. 
Paul also took the counsel of Jesus seriously in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What did Jesus mean? He meant that we should invest in what we desire most. To put it plainly, Jesus is saying that your heart follows your money. Now, that's not the way most of us think. We tend to think that our money follows our heart. If our heart's right, we'll manage our money wisely. But Paul understood what Jesus meant when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he disciplined himself. Paul disciplined himself to put his treasure where he wanted his heart to be. He wanted his heart to be in God's kingdom. He wanted his heart to be in Christ's church. So I think we should regularly ask ourselves, where is my treasure? And is that where I want my heart to be? Those are good questions to ask. In light of the words of Jesus, am I investing my treasure, my finances, in the things that I really want to love, in the things that have eternal significance? Well, Paul also took the counsel of Jesus seriously in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus was doing there is warning us to be devoted to one master. And Jesus clearly views money as God's chief rival for preeminence in our lives. And have you ever noticed that money has many characteristics of deity? That's why it gets such control of some people because money is very much like a God. Promises security, promises freedom, promises power. But Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus didn't say it would be unwise for you to serve both. He didn't say you better not try serving both. He said it, you can't do it. It can't be done. You cannot serve God and money. It's an absolute impossibility. Jesus said that loving money will cause us to end up despising the Lord. Strong words. The words of Jesus, you can't serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. Loving money, loving the Lord are mutually exclusive. Listen to the words of Bernard Eller. He said, your ultimate loyalty must converge at a single point. To try to go two ways at once will rip a person down the middle. So if you feel spiritually divided today, it may be related to the fact that you haven't resolved this fundamental conflict between your Creator God, your Heavenly Father, and the God of money. Please understand, this doesn't mean that you can't use resources for activities that are pleasurable or enjoyable, like a vacation or a night out with your mate or a purchase for your home, what it means is you don't use all the resources God gives you for those things without giving back to the Lord in recognition that He is the provider of every good and perfect gift in your life. And the Bible gives us some practical help in determining how to engage this very important expression of worship, and it's called tithing giving 10% back to God. Not just 10%, the first 
10%. According to a recent Barna survey among Christian adults, now this is nationally, nationally, only 9% contribute one-tenth or more of their income to God's work. Now, I want you to know that Crossroads is considerably higher than that. In fact, I would want you to know that every one of our 18 elders and every one of our 18 pastors give above a tithe. And the most recent giving challenge to our church family back in November 2012, you remember that? Good sense, we call it. Out of 1,600 giving units at Crossroads, 778 give at least a tithe. That represents 49%. 49% versus 9%. That'll give you an idea why we are a blessed church. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when we are a big-hearted, open-handed people, both individually and corporately as a church, we are a more blessed people. Have you thought about the fact that our time and our gifts and abilities and our our treasure, our finances are all God's gift to us. Scripture says it is God who gives you the ability to get wealth. These three, these three things, time and talent and treasure, they constitute blessings. They constitute a trust from God. And they're given to us with the expectation that we'll be faithful stewards of these gifts as an expression of grateful worship. And so we want our church to be filled with people who are committed to this core value of generous living. And even if you're not there today, you can decide in these moments to submit to God's best and to commit that you're going to grow in these areas of serving and giving, which constitute our response to God's goodness and God's grace. When Jesus summarized his own life mission in Mark 10:45, here's what he said. The Son of Man came not to serve, came not to be served, rather, but to serve and to give. There it is. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, a ransom for many. And we follow in his train. We are the body of Christ, the visible presence of Jesus Christ in this world, in our generation. It all starts with first giving yourself, giving your heart to the Lord. And so this morning, if you are ready to become a follower of Jesus, if you're ready to be added to his church at Crossroads, please come this morning. We're going to stand. We'll be right down front to meet you as we sing one final worship song together. <laughs>